You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Uh, welcome. Thank you for coming to the first Mill Sunday School of 2011. It's pretty cool. I'm excited to be here. I've never spoken at Mill Sunday School before. Joe's out of town. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Aaron Wagner. I'm on the Mill staff with Dr. Joe, and he should be back next week. But for this week, you're stuck with me no matter what, like it or not. Here I am. You're welcome. Um, so the way we're going to the book, I'm like all over the place to start off with. In the month of January, here at the Mill Sunday School, we are talking about Job, which is really sweet because that's a really easy topic for me to cover since this is my first time speaking at Mill Sunday School. And when, Joe, when Joe first asked me to speak about Job, I actually thought it was a practical joke. I thought he was messing with me. He's like, you just have to talk about Job and pain and suffering. It's your first time to ever speak at Sunday School. It'll be perfect. Screwed up. And I know he's going to listen to this on podcast, and I want him to know that's screwed up. It was a dirty trick. So we're talking about Job. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to have like a brief, quick introduction to Job. Brief meaning like under a minute or less. We'll talk about the book of Job. And then kind of a big idea that I get out of when I, when I read through Job, when I read through all those things, I, there's questions that I have. And so we're going to just talk about some of that. So before we get started... Officially really getting started. Let us pray real quick, and then we'll move on. So God, we just thank you. We thank you for today, and we thank you for community, and we thank you for your word. We thank you in situations like these that we can come together as a beautiful blending of your word and people, that we can learn from one another and grow and learn about you and who you are. God, we just pray that you would move. Holy Spirit, would you allow me to say the things that you want me to say today? In your name we pray. Amen. So, just to give you a... Most of you know the story of Job. If you've been around church long enough, you know those stories. But for those of you that don't know, I'll just give you like a brief, brief, just quick overview of Job. If you don't know, Job is in the Old Testament. It's a book in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's right after Esther and right before Psalms. So if you don't know where that is, you can, you can use like the trick you learned when you were six years old, that if you just open your Bible in the middle somewhere, you'll probably get Psalms, and then just go pages before and you'll hit Job. Does anybody know those jokes? or know those tricks? I, everything I, every book in the Bible, I have to learn where it is compared to Psalms. So when I open it up in the middle, I can just go left or right. It's real. And sad. So, so the book of Job is between Esther and Psalms. It's about a blameless and upright man who's full of integrity. At the beginning part of Job, um, Satan comes to God. There's dialogue. God allows Satan to test Job twice. In the first test, Job loses oxen and donkeys, and he loses some servants. And then he loses some sheep and some more servants. And then he loses a camel and some even more servants. They all died. In the end of the first test, he loses his sons and his daughters. They all die. So that's test one. And the second test then affects Job's health. So he gets sores from the top of his head to the bottoms of his feet. It says that it's bad enough that he would take like broken clay pottery and try to scrape the sores off of his skin. So, I mean, obviously it, it was pretty bad. It was pretty miserable. So that's the second test. And all this happens in chapter one, which is a sweet way to start a story. <clears throat> and so the, the majority chunk then of the book of Job is conversations between Job and his wife, Job, and his three friends, and then Job and the Lord. And it actually ends with conversations with Job and the Lord. And it's, 
I know some of you guys have probably heard this. This is where the Lord says down Job says, raise yourself like a man. Where were you? And I've made the foundations of the earth. Where were you when I was doing it? So that's all in the end of Job. So the end of Job then ends with the Lord being angry with Job's three friends because they said things that were incorrect about him. And then the Lord blesses Job with twice as much as he had to begin with. So that is the brief overview of Job. If you feel like I left things out, it's because I did. Because I only talked about Job for like a minute. It's like a lot of chapters. Look it up. It's a, it's a big book. So that's kind of the overview of Job. And so the thing that I get when I read through Job is I, is I wonder how a king who is sovereign and a lord who is sovereign allows those things, the pain, the hurt, the, all those things to take place. And so I think that leads me to just want to dive in to the, this topic of God's sovereignty to really figure out if God is sovereign, then why? And so we're just going to talk about that for the next however long this morning and just talk about God's sovereignty. So I think there's a couple of things that we will cover. Like we'll talk about um, our understanding. I mean, we kind of have a limit and a lack of understanding of God's sovereignty sometimes. Second thing we'll talk about, whenever you discuss God's sovereignty, the, um, the issue of free will comes up. So we'll cover that, which will be just buckets of fun. And then we'll end with just some of those questions. Why does God do that? The pain and suffering. How does he allow it? Why does he allow it? And we'll even talk about different people and how they've addressed that question in the past. So the first thing is our lack of understanding. I think we have to know what sovereignty is before we realize that we can have a lack of understanding in it. So God's sovereignty means that he's in complete control. It means that he has all power and all authority and that he has absolute freedom. So those are like the four things that's sovereign. And I will start out by saying that whenever we talk about attributes of God, it's normally attributes we give God to understand him. So it's not, you can't always look, Jordan and I were even talking about this morning, you can't always just look through the Bible and say, oh, God is this, and here is the perfect description of what that means. So when I say God's sovereignty, it means he's in complete control, holds all power, holds all authority, and is absolutely free. Got it? Sweet. Sweet. So, so when we have a lack of understanding, it's hard sometimes because we have a limit. Our natural brains only go so far in understanding things. We can't understand a God who's absolutely free because we've never seen anything in our lives that's absolutely free. When I say he's absolutely free, I mean he has the ability to do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it, which we don't have. We, there's rules that we have to follow. Like we're limited by time. We're limited by money. We're limited by... Gravity. I mean, there's lots of things that keep us from doing things. You know, even if you quit your job and quit your school and you're completely free, well, you still have to eat sometime. You still have to do those things. And I was even thinking about it. I mean, today is January 2nd. This is where all of us come up with sweet New Year's resolutions. But if some of you came up, if one of you came up to me after this and said, Aaron, my New Year's resolution is to go the whole year without sleeping, I'd say, you're an idiot. But if you came up to me and also said, like, I'm going to go the whole year without eating or drinking anything. If, if that was real, if you really tried to go a whole year without eating or drinking, one, you'd be dumb. But two, I wouldn't let you. I'd make Big Bill chase you down and we'd put bagels down your throat right now just so you would eat. It's just not smart to go a whole year without eating anything. So there's rules and laws that I have to follow that God doesn't have to follow. He doesn't need to take a nap. He doesn't need to watch his clock and make sure he shows up at the right time to do the right thing. He's God. He does whatever he wants. He's absolutely free. And I will clarify something. 
when I say that he can do whatever he wants, there are kind of limits. But a couple of weeks ago at Mill Sunday School, before the break, in our table we were talking about God and different things. And I said, oh, God can do whatever he wants. And someone said, oh, no, God can't do whatever he wants. He can't lie. So I think there's a difference between, when I keep saying he can do whatever he wants, I think there's a difference between what he wants and what he wills to do. And so some books I've been reading this week um, have really helped me in this understanding of this. One of them is a book by A.W. Tozer. It's The Attributes of God. It's really good. I don't know if you've heard of A.W. Tozer, but he's written lots of books like Knowledge of the Holy, Pursuit of God, different things like that. But in The Attributes of God, there's actually a couple of different volumes of it, but he just takes an attribute and expounds on it. So I just want to read this to you because obviously he can probably say things better than I can. So when I say God can do it every once, this is what I'm trying to say. God's sovereignty logically implies his absolute freedom to do all that he wills to do. God's sovereignty does not mean that he can do anything, but it means he can do anything that he wills to do. The sovereignty of God and the will of God are bound up together. The sovereignty of God does not mean that God can lie, for God does not will to lie. God is truth, and therefore God cannot lie, for he wills not to lie. God cannot break a promise because to break a promise would be to violate his nature, and God does not will to violate his nature. Therefore, it is silly to say that God can do anything, but it is scriptural to say that God can do anything he wills to do. God is absolutely free. No one can compel him. No one can hinder him. No one can stop him. God has freedom to do as he pleases, always, everywhere, and forever. And so I think that is a big idea that we can't see. Because in our whole lives, we have never seen anything that is that free. And so I think that hinders us and limits us. And I think another thing that hinders our ability to really understand God and his sovereignty, it's just that we're humans. We're, we're created beings. We live in a fallen and broken world. So in all the language that we have to describe God is stuff that we see that is created. We don't have a creator vocabulary that God has. And there's things that are qualities in us that if they're, that God can have qualities that are different than us. There's things that we have that if we had them, it would be bad. But if God had them, it may not be bad. For example, if you were extra prideful, I would say that you were cocky and I probably wouldn't like to hang out with you because who likes to hang out with someone who's prideful and thinks they're better than everybody else? But what if God's prideful? Is that okay? I would say maybe it is because when I'm prideful, I'm saying that I'm better than everybody else, but really we all know that I'm not the best at everything, right? I mean, I have limits. I'm not the best at everything. So when I'm prideful, that, I elevate myself over everybody else, but really, no matter what I do, there's someone who can do it better than me. But God doesn't have that problem. Everything God does, he does better than everybody else. So is it okay for him to be prideful? So there's different words that, des- that describe God that we can't quite understand. There's something in our depravity, our human nature, that we can't quite get God's sovereignty. And I want to read you another quote, and this will be the last time I read you quotes. But I was reading Grief Observed with my wife. It's a C.S. Lewis book. It's the book he wrote after his wife died. And he's kind of sorting through pain and suffering and different ideas. And so he talks about what I was just talking about. And obviously he says it better than me because he is C.S. Lewis and I am not. So... It says, now God has, in fact, our worst fears are true. All the characteristics we regard as bad, unreasonableness, vanity, vindictiveness, injustice, and cruelty. But all these blacks, as they seem to us, are really whites. It's only our depravity that makes them look black to us. 
And I think that is, is hard to begin when we talk about this God who's all these things, the ultimate control, ultimate power and authority is absolutely free. Those are the walls we'll run up against because we can't understand. There's something that, there's a, there's a wall that we will always hit when we come about talking about these kinds of issues. And so since now that we know that we won't know, we'll keep talking about things and hopefully we'll keep learning things. So that's the first issue. Second issue is that when you talk about God's sovereignty, you start coming up with the discussion of free will. Because if God is ultimately in control of everything, how do you have the ability to choose salvation or not to choose salvation? And if it's already planned for you, if he's already in control of it and made the choice for you, then how in the world can you be accountable for the choices you make or not make if he already knew you were going to make them, if he already planned for you to make them? See how it's kind of like this weird thing that comes together when you talk about sovereignty? So in the free will discussion, there's, there's been lots of debate for a long time. And I'm going to let you guys talk about it here in a minute so you don't just hear me talk about it. But there's, there's like two different camps that people fall into. So the first camp would be like the camp of John Calvin where God, it, it, it airs on the side of God's sovereignty saying he is already so sovereign, he's already planned it, it's already in full control. This is kind of the camp that says like, well, if you have a decision to make, you feel like you make the decision, but really God already knew you were going to make the decision, so you didn't really make a decision to begin with because it was already made for you, even if you felt like you were making one. Does that make sense? So that's, that's that camp. The problem with this the camp then is then that would mean that Jesus chose to die and save only a few people, and he chose not to die for the others that he knew wouldn't accept him, which, which for me, I can't make that leap. So then on the other camp, so that's camp one, is the John Calvin camp. Camp two that you have is that of Jacob Arminius. And it is, it emphasis, the emphasis in this category, in this camp, is free will. And it is the category that says Jesus died for everybody. You have the ability to choose or not to choose. The, the problem people have with this camp is that sometimes you might be able to choose something that's out of God's will, which then says that he's not sovereign. Meaning, do you guys, would you say that it is against God's will for me to come down right now and kill somebody right now, right in Mill Sunday School, just murder them right now in Mill Sunday School? Would you say that's against God's will? Yes, I would too. So if I did that right now, and if I came down and made the choice to murder someone on the front row of Mill Sunday School, then, sorry, the whole side made faces at me. It is, but, so would that go against God's will, which means that he's not in control and means he's not sovereign? So that's the problem with camp two. Does that make sense? So camp one, you have the side of everything's planned. Jesus only chose to die for the ones he chose to die for. And camp two is that we have the ability to have free will and to choose salvation, but we also have the ability to undermine God's ultimate authority by choosing something that he doesn't want. So I've been reading about this this week, and I've been really... I've been really interested in the two different camps. So what I want you to do is I just want you to take like the next, I don't know, five or ten minutes and talk as a table about what you think, which camp you would fall into. And I want you to actually pick one. I know there is kind of a continuum and there's kind of things you can land, but just for the sake of this conversation, I want you to pick one. And as a whole table, decide on one thing that you will decide on together. So as this table, your camp one, Calvinism, or you can be in camp two, which is not Calvinism, Arminianism. Does that make sense? So then after we talk, I want to hear like two or three arguments for each side, because I just think 
we could have some really fun things to say about this. All right, so go. If your table landed in Camp 1, which is leans on the Calvin side, emphasis strong on the sovereignty of God, would you raise your hand? If you're in Camp 1, thank you, Noah Bakken. All right, so that's it. And how about Camp 2? Is everybody else in Camp 2? Okay. All right, I figured that would be the case. I think it's, I, I don't know, I think I would probably lean in the same direction. But I just want to hear what you guys were talking about, what you were thinking about. So I just want to hear a couple arguments for each side. So those of you that are extremely outnumbered on the Calvin side, I still want to hear from you. So we have a couple mics. I think Patrick has one. And Jordan has one right here. Does anyone share their thoughts with us? Bueller. Vern. Okay, yeah, so um, I don't think anybody listened when you said, like, choose one or the other. Because I didn't want, I I think our table didn't want to choose one or the other. Because most of us were, like, in between. Um, But that's why I chose Arminianism over Calvinism. Because... Calvinism just puts God in a box kind of thing. It says basically it doesn't matter what you do, God chose you to do this kind of thing. And so I was like, um, well then it doesn't matter what I do at all, you know, because that's what Calvinism says. So, but I'm not totally, you know, on the other side either, but so I chose Arminianism over Um, it, is this actually on? Okay. Um, if I have to absolutely choose a camp, I would lean towards the Armenianism because knowledge of what is going to happen does not force something to happen. There's two really good analogies. One I've used since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. My parents gave it to me when people would confront me about my faith. Um, and it was, let's say it's your birthday coming up and your very best friend, for some reason, is not going to be able to come to your birthday party. Um, they have to be out of town because family member is sick, or they have to work and they can't get out of it. Think of whatever reason you want. There is some reason that they absolutely cannot make it to your birthday party, and you know that already. Do you still want to invite them to your birthday party? Of course you do, because you know that they would be hurt if you didn't invite them, and you also want to give them, in case by some miracle there is an opportunity that they're able to come, you want them to have that opportunity. You want them to have that option, even though you know that they're not going to be able to come. So just because you know they're not going to be able to come doesn't cause them to not be able to come. Your knowledge does not force the thing to happen. Uh, Another similar example is gravity. People didn't really know what gravity was in, let's say, 180 But it still existed. People weren't floating around because they didn't know that gravity existed. Gravity exists whether we know it or not. Similarly, God knows what we're going to do, but that knowledge doesn't force us to do what we are going to choose to do. Um, I'm a mathematician, so in some ways I can think of it as God is the world's best mathematician. He He knows all the variables. He knows everything that can possibly affect our decisions. And because he is so much smarter than any and all of us combined, he can predict what we're going to do. 
but that prediction doesn't cause something to happen. Knowledge is not the same as force. All right. <laughs> Bill. We, we picked free will, and uh, we, we just... Um, nervous. All right, so we decided that because um, a lot of times in the Old Testament, God wouldn't move until somebody prayed about it, fasted about it, or actually went there. Like, uh, Jonah went to Nineveh. If he didn't go there, would the people have repented? I don't know. But he did, and that was a free will choice, even though he got in a fish and got sent there. Maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> anyway, the other, the other idea... The other idea was, um, if it's God's will that all men should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, why would you ever plan for someone not to? That's good. Yeah, up here in front, we'll make Patrick work a little bit. Okay, someone has to make this uh, argument. So uh, first off, um, the, the counter-argument to all this, you, you say it's too much of a stretch to say that God died for some people and that God created some people to be evil and stuff. But then you've got Proverbs 16.4, which says, The Lord has made everything for his own purposes, even the wicked for the day of disaster. It's a Bible verse. <laughs> And then, uh, like a more practical example is when uh, the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, the, the passage in Scripture um, about the, the, the tribulations that came over uh, um, Egypt was that uh, God actually hardened the Pharaoh's heart. That's, that's also scriptural. And it, it, it doesn't say God allowed the Pharaoh's heart to become hard. It says, no, it very distinctly and directly says he hardened the Pharaoh's heart. So, I mean, if you're, you're going to say things like he can't um, affect our will, then you've got to then go back in and explain how he did. Good point. Good point. Yeah, behind you, Patrick, there's one. Yeah, and there is, the thing that's tricky about this conversation is that there's, there's not, I don't think there's a right or a wrong side. I think you can find... I mean, there's evidence that makes Camp 1 very true. God's sovereignty is really true. There's things that make Camp 2 very true. But, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. You're fine. Um, I kind of grew up in an Arminianism kind of a culture. Um, Grew up mostly Wesleyan and kind of have left that since then and came more or less to a Calvinist side. And I wouldn't say that I am full out, like, the whole five-point kind of Calvinist because I don't believe in limited grace or... um, like certain chosen people and these are the only people that are going to go to heaven. I do agree with that the Bible verse says very specifically that Christ can choose to harden um, certain people's hearts or whatnot, but I don't think you always necessarily see the outcome at the end that says where he may have unhardened it. He may harden it for a time and for a period, but because our God is um, not limited, he can do whatever he wills. And that does mean he could harden someone, but I feel like he also has this very loving and just side that wants to give everyone an opportunity, and um, he did die for the world and not just a part of the world. And so, um, I don't know. I, 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 would, I would agree that 
Um, God foreknows who's going to be ultimately in his kingdom with him and who's not, but that doesn't mean that he puts a limit on only because these people are, that doesn't mean I'm not going to offer it to everyone else. So I don't know if that makes me in the middle or not, but I feel like it makes me more on the Calvinism side. So, All right. Do we have anybody else wants to say anything? I would love to hear any other thoughts if you lean on the Calvinist side since most of you weren't on that side. So is there anybody else? Bueller? Bueller? Yes, I knew it. Well, to not choose one side or the other, um, but rather a, a third guy whose name is Greg Kokel, and he talks about the sovereign will versus our free will and how God's sovereign will is something you can't control. It's going to happen whether you want it to or not, like the revelations or the end times. What you do doesn't really affect it. It will be. And other things that God is in control that our choices won't necessarily change anything about what he does, but that we also have a free will and that we can make choices that do change things. And examples that he gives with this of how these can coincide and both be in effect together are if things like if God's a loving God, he's not just this cosmic meanie playing this big game of hot and cold. Oh, you're doing good. Hot, hot, hot. Oh, cold, cold, cold. You're bad. (laughs) And that with that, he's made, if he wants our sovereign will, if he wants it obeyed, he has to put it out there clearly. Like, thou shalt do this or that. And there's a lot of areas that aren't specifically talked about. So it's like, well, is there this big plan that's so sovereign that if one person does the wrong thing, they have geometrically ruined the human race? Because they messed up? Does that mean that everybody's living on plan Z instead of plan A for their life? Because they messed up? Or does it mean that God has a sovereign will that ultimately his sovereign will will happen, but within his sovereign will he gave you free choice? And thus you have a free will to do and make decisions because love requires choice. Otherwise, it's not love. That's good. There's, There's an analogy that goes along with some of that thinking. And it's the analogy that if you got on a cruise ship and went from like New York and went all the way over to Europe and you were on this long boat ride, ultimately there's nothing you can do to change the boat ride. <clears throat> you start in New York, you will end up in Europe no matter what you really do. Unless you jump off of it, you, you don't have any choices to make. But while you're on the cruise ship, you have lots of choices. You can cho- choose to play shuffleboard. You can choose to do anything you want. You're free to do whatever you want, but ultimately you're going to end up where the destination, where the captain has decided for you to go. So that is an analogy with that uh, kind of thing. And there is, I do think there's a continuum, because I do think I want to lean on the camp one side of saying, no, God is sovereign. He is an ultimate authority, ultimate control. He can do whatever he wants. He can harden hearts if he wants to. He can burn down cities if he wants to. I mean, you read through some of the Old Testament, even the story, some of the stories of David, the amount of people David killed is because God gave him the power and the authority to do so. You think, well, he can do what he wants. So that's real. And then there's the other side. Is, but I can't believe in a God that only died for some people because he liked them more than everybody else. And so there, there's this kind of issue. Another thing that I heard, another argument that kind of puts you in the middle. It probably leans on the Arminian side, but kind of uh, still puts you in the middle is the problem with the Arminian side is that you can make a choice that undermines God's will, which 
therefore undermines his authority and his sovereignty. But so they were saying that God gave us the freedom to choose, gave us the ability to have free will. So when we act in free will, when we make a choice, whether that choice is a good choice or a bad choice, by simply making the act of a choice, it glorifies the God and his sovereignty because he allowed us to make that choice. Does that make sense? Did I explain that right? So it's not, the, it's not the consequence of our choice. It's not a good or bad choice. But just the fact that we are making a choice points to the God that gave us the ability to make a choice. So it still glorifies him. So that's another argument to put us right in the middle. So again, we landed in the fact we know that we don't know. That's how I feel about everything we talk about today. We, know about it, we learn about his understanding and we know that we don't know it. We talk about free will and then we know that we don't know it. It's pretty sweet. And then, uh, so the last thing, and, and I think ultimately, we'll probably get out of here a couple minutes early today, but I think I, I don't know the answers to that. Because I think about Job, and I think about pain and suffering and why it exists. And I, and I understand that there's things in this world that cause pain to happen. Like I know there's a Satan. I know there's a devil roaming around wanting us to do bad, that wants us to suffer, wants us to go through lots of terrible things. I get that. I get and understand that we live in a fallen and sinful world where sin, we all have to be redeemed. We start off needing to be redeemed. I, I get that. But I guess the question I get when talking about sovereign God is why does that stuff even exist to begin with? If he really is all-powerful, in complete control, has all authority, and he's absolutely free to do whatever he wills to do, why is that stuff even there to begin with? And so I'm not, uh, just to say, like, that's part of my struggle when talking about God's sovereignty is I just don't get it. And I think when I was looking and doing some reading, there's old religions, and they, they skip around the idea of God's sovereignty by splitting up God. So there's a religion, I don't want to say it because I don't know how to pronounce it, but basically there's two gods. There was a good God, which was like Armad, and there's an evil God who was named like Aramon. If you know what I'm talking about, you can correct me. Or if you, yeah. So there's a good God. So the good God made everything that was great, pleasing, and holy, and perfect. But then there's another God who made everything else. All the evil, all the bad. And if, there was a, if these two gods were sitting on a teeter-totter, they would be like completely balanced. Where altogether there's sovereignty and there's control, but there's a really good side and a really bad side. But obviously as Christians... We can't believe that there's multiple... I don't think my God is bipolar. I don't think that there's... I don't think he's split up like that, you know? Like, I don't think if I pray one day, I hope I catch him in a good mood today so he doesn't kill me. You know, like, I don't think it works like that. And so, so ultimately... Yeah, we've been talking for four or five minutes, and I think ultimately I just don't know. I don't know how it all works. I don't get how the sovereignty of God really works. I know that God is in complete control. I know he has power. I know he's absolutely free to do whatever he wants to do. And when I and that's why I really thanked Joe for giving me such an easy topic to talk about. Because in Job's life you see that. It's hard. I don't get it. You know, and I don't want to compare all of our problems to Job. But there are things in our life. There are people that die before they should. We do have family members who are sick and won't be getting better. We have those things in our lives. And so why are they there if he's really in control? But to 
kind of end, to wrap up on a less depressing note, I think ultimately we know that our God is sovereign. And ultimately we know that he does win. Even in Job's life, we see at the end, he does win. Why does Job go through all the mess? I don't know. But ultimately God wins. He's proven sovereign. And in our lives, it'll be the same way. So I think with all this to say, I don't want to just give you all this random information about free will and Calvinism and all this stuff just to leave more confused. But I think there is something to say that there's a mystery about our God that we can't understand. But he's worth worshiping. He's worth giving our lives to. Because we are going to have mess. But ultimately we know who's going to win. We know that he's won. We know even in Jesus' life. We see it in Job's life. We see it in Jesus' life. Jesus went through a lot. He was crucified for us. That's miserable. That's an experience I don't want to go through. But ultimately, through the pain, he still wins. So I hope I haven't left you completely confused and depressed. And we are leaving a little early, but let me just pray for you, because that's all we have today. Father God, we, we do just thank you for your words. And even if, even if my mind can't wrap around it all the time, God, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are complete control, that you know what's going on. When we're surprised by life's tragedies, there's, there's not a surprise to you. You're there for us. You know you can help us through things. And we thank you that you've come down in human form. As we just got done celebrating Christmas, we know that all the things that we face, you have faced loneliness and all these different things and qualities that we have as humans that are hard and sad. We know that you have also experienced them. You haven't sent us on this journey, on this trip, on this long boat ride alone. So God, I pray that you would help us to keep coming after you and to keep understanding your words in a stronger and deeper way. And we just thank you that you are a great God who reigns supreme. In your name we pray. Amen. So that's all we got. Please enjoy the rest of the bagels in the back. And we'll see you next week when we talk about Job some more.